0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the
1: stock market each day.
2: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
1: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today, we're talking financials.
2: Today, we're talking consumer goods.
1: Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today, we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, April 26th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we'll catch up on what's been happening with banks this earnings season. We'll also talk about the 5G economy with Nick Ludlum, Senior Vice President at CTIA, an organization that represents the U.S. wireless communications industry and all of the companies throughout the mobile ecosystem. Joining me today, as most Mondays, it's Certified Financial Planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
2: Pretty good. It's a warm and sunny day in South Carolina. I hope it gets warmer up there so you could, uh, you know, wear some t-shirts or something. (laughs) Well,
1: it's coming around. (laughs) I tell you, the mornings have still been chilly, man. But I think this week it's it's we're slated for some warmer weather um, right as we wrap up April here. But I mean, that's the argument with Northern Virginia, really is. You just it doesn't seem like we really get spring up here, man. It goes like from winter into just sort of a sprummer, right? And maybe that's what we need to coin it, sprummer, because you get a little bit of spring, but really it just kinda just transitions right into summer. You just you just don't get that lovely Augusta, Georgia vibe for very long up here. I
2: feel I feel like every year about April or May, either Virginia has a spring or we have a spring it's never both <laughs> like either you'll have like a long winter and then just jump to summer or we'll just jump right into summer and you know it's you know, only one of us gets it. a spring each year maybe that's it we're just trading off i guess <laughs> well
1: i mean hey listen it, it's it's going to have to warm up eventually, right? Time just demands it. So I think I think we're at least heading the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, you know, last week, terrific interview. Last week, really enjoyed. I really enjoyed checking that out. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, we we put some um, we put some earnings on the back burner. Uh, because of that, and so we wanted to get to those earnings this week, right? Earnings palooza has begun. Um, of course, the banks are really what kick off earnings season for for most of us uh, this quarter. No exception. We have a lot of banks on tap that we weren't able to get to last week, so we want to get to them this week. Um, and and let's just go ahead and dive right in. Let's start with the bank. Probably everyone is is wanting to hear from first and foremost. Just just because of the CEO, if if no other reason, right? Jamie Dimon, probably the most famous banker um, in in the world, uh, J P Morgan. Uh, what 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 stood out to you in regard to J P Morgan's uh, quarter, and how does this how does this year look to be setting up for the banks?
2: Well, aside from that sixty six page shareholder letter that you just alluded to, <laughs> yeah. uh, Buffett's is nineteen pages for comparison. So, Jamie Dimon is not a man of few words.
1: No, he had a lot to
2: say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, beyond that, just some general themes in the banking industry before we dive into J.P. Morgan specifically. First of all, and this applies for all of these, it's really tough to compare year-over-year year right now. Um, think about the first quarter of this year, we've seen a lot of reserve releases, as we'll get into, um, as banks have and banks have had really good results. But what happened in the first quarter of last year? You know the 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 sky was falling. Banks were setting aside billions of dollars. There were you know everyone was posting losses. It's really tough to compare year over year. So you're not going to hear me say stuff like, "Oh, their earnings went up 10% over the past <laughs> year." That's just not a thing this quarter. So if yeah. if you, I'm not leaving that out out of laziness, it's just it's not a very good comparison right now. Um, another thing, uh, the the SPAC boom is really kind of distorting some of these in a good way. Um, you know. The SPACs were going public 30 a day in some cases uh, this spring. Um, so, all these, in- the, every bank that has an investment banking unit has been through the roof. Um, and the, the last general theme is that the, everyone's saving money. There's a ton of money out there. There's stimulus being injected, there's un- added unemployment benefits. Add to that the uncertainty that people don't want to go out and spend, and the fact that a lot of people are still in, at home most of the time. Um, and, and savings rates have kind of gone through the roof. So, as we go through these, you'll see this. But just to get to JP Morgan, JP Morgan's kick, they were the first bank to report, and they kind of got us off to a pretty impressive start. They beat earnings expectations handily and revenue. Uh, revenue came in about $2.6 billion more than the market was looking for. Um, earnings per share were $4.50 versus $3.10 that was expected the return on equity roe um, we normally consider over 10% to be good uh 23% okay. so i'm going to put a big asterisk on all those numbers jp morgan released 5.2 billion dollars of their loan loss reserves this quarter shh remember, remember last year they were setting aside billions and billions of dollars in anticipation of these covid related loan losses oh, that yeah. never really materialized yeah um There was a ton of uncertainty. They absolutely made the right call at the time, but like I said, um, there's been the the loan forgiveness or banks have done loan forbearance pretty much voluntarily throughout this entire process. They're not allowed to foreclose on mortgages right now. There's um, you know the the enhanced unemployment benefits that have been going on for most of the pandemic, um, the stimulus checks, things like that. Loan losses never really materialized, at least not to the level that banks thought they might. Um, So. JP Morgan this was the biggest number of the five banks that we're going to talk about. 5.2 billion dollars released. That made up 1. $1.28 per share of their earnings. So a lot of that the earnings were the reserve releases. And that's Most, not a surprise, right? I mean we
1: that was a tailwind that you and I have been talking about really I, I mean we've been talking about for the better part I mean for the better part of the last 12 months I feel like. I mean we started talking about that tailwind really even as the pandemic had had just started really i mean we started seeing the banks really taking that conservative tone understandably so but but this is just all to say that this is a tale when we really have been
2: expecting right and i was admittedly scared when the pandemic first started that you know banks weren't going to be able to handle this as soon as the cares act was passed that was the one at the end of last march i think that was the real turning point when we all said you know they're setting aside too much this isn't gonna it you know it's Financially, I mean, the pandemic drug on for a while and it was worse than most people had hoped for, but financially it wasn't as big of an impact as we thought it was going to be because the government acted quickly and aggressively and really did the right thing. Um, so, no, the, the reserve releases weren't a big surprise. Um, it did distort the numbers to the positive side. Um, the other thing that distorted JPMorgan Chase's numbers were trading revenue and investment banking. Um, in investment banking trading generally benefits from a volatile environment. There are two kinds of trading. There's equities trading, which the stock market was pretty volatile for most of the first quarter. Remember when the tech stocks were kind of going crazy and up oh, and down yeah. and I So that's good for well. Yeah, I mean pretty much everyone <laughs> at the full remembers that yeah. really well. Um, that's good for equities trading. Then we also saw a lot of interest rate volatility. Um, remember the ten-year Treasury yield was going up and going up pretty rapidly and was scaring some people for a while there. That's good for the fixed income side of trading. So between the two of those, J.P. Morgan beat trading revenue estimates by one point eight billion dollars. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's
1: very impressive.
2: Um, and that has nothing to do with the SPAC boom. Here's where the SPAC boom comes in. <laughs> yeah. Investment banking fee revenue. This is the fees they're getting for things like equity underwriting. Which I'm um, every time a SPAC goes public, they have to pay underwriters. Um, investment banking revenue more than tripled year over year to almost three billion dollars, up two hundred twenty-two percent. That's a crazy gain. So, yes, revenue was was through the roof. Earnings are through the roof. But with, from the combination of trading revenue, investment banking revenue, and uh, the the reserve releases take it with a big grain of salt because it's unclear how sustainable that will be.
1: Well, and that grain of salt, I'm glad you said that because I mean it's not like the stock just exploded, right? I mean these are numbers that really would make you think, "Oh man, I mean this this is going to be a banner day for <laughs> JP Morgan shareholders." But as as we all know, the market is forward-looking. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to connect these dots and say, you know what, that spack well, that that spigot is now run dry. Okay, those, those things aren't launching uh, every every other every other minute like they were last quarter. And furthermore, I mean, the, the releases of those reserves, I mean, that runs dry too, right? You only have so much in reserves to release. Now you got to get down to brass tacks and tell us how the business is actually doing. I mean, what's your takeaway there? I mean, is J.P. Morgan still in a position to succeed this year? Is is the banking sector writ large in a position to bounce back from a tough 2020, or is this kind of a one off quarter? I mean, you know, I think.
2: Well, I'd say focus on the parts of the business that have staying power. Even in normal times, things like trading revenue really jump from one quarter to the other. Um, if you look at things like loan demand and deposit base and stuff like that. Um, Jamie Dimon in his letter called loan demand challenging, meaning, and, and the JPMorgan's deposit base is up 36% year-over-year. Year. When consumers have that much cash, they don't need to borrow on credit cards as much. They don't, they're paying down their loans faster than they have to. So He called the loan demand challenging, but at the same time, their deposit base now sits at $2.2 trillion and their loan portfolio has barely budged year-over-year that's a lot of cash on the sidelines that they have available to lend um so I think they do if if the economy really picks up in the second half of the year these banks have a lot of money to lend um so so th- they could still benefit well and a, an economic pickup would act would help interest margins interest margins were generally low this quarter um but if interest rates were to go up that would help even more um so the business it's it's this quarter's positive surprise was related to areas of the business that are not terribly sustainable, um, but the sustainable areas of business do look good going forward.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about Bank of America because if we if if we put J.P. Morgan typically at the top of the list, there in in, in Jamie Dimon, it, it does feel like Bank of America is a well deserved one B, right? I mean, this is this is a bank and leadership in in Brian Moynihan that. Exceptional, I would just say. I think it's, it's a fair word. I, I think he's done a wonderful job with the bank since he stepped in. I think he's been seven, eight years now as CEO of the bank, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what 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 stood out to you for Bank of America's
2: quarter? Well, here's how good banking in general was. Bank of America reported earnings uh, that were 20 cents a share ahead of estimates. Revenue that was 800 million dollars ahead of estimates. They reported um, the consumer deposit growth of 25%, and their stock fell after earnings. Yeah, <laughs> That's how strong bank earnings were. That that was yeah. one of the weaker reports in the yeah. sector. Um, one of the big weak points and things to note about Bank of America is their loan portfolio dropped by 8% year-over-year. Year. Uh, JP Morgan's was down 1%. So That's a, a big kind of Comparative difference there.
1: Do you think it's cons- Do you think people are scared? Is it a combination of of fear and I mean, I know underwriting standards have tightened. I mean, I think it's more difficult now
2: to get a loan than it has traditionally been. Is, is it one or the other? Do you feel like it's a combination? Well, it's a combination because most of the drop was credit card loans, and those are falling for two big reasons. One, consumers have a lot of cash and are more, you know, risk averse right now because of the uncertainty. They're getting their stimulus checks, stuff like that. They're paying down their credit card balances in a lot of cases. I know my wife put one of our stimulus checks toward paying down debt. Yeah, um, it's a good use of it. I mean, I get it. Right. So, so that's one side of it. The other side is people haven't been doing anything that they need to borrow money for in the past year. So that's why I say because it's mostly credit card debt that, that's falling. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the American consumer that people are you know their credit card balances are getting more under control. But there, there it's it's a supply and demand thing. There's a lot of supply of cash, not a lot of demand for spending right or there hasn't been. but I could see that changing as we go forward this year.
1: Yeah, it does feel like that's uh, that's poised to to turn here. Um, uh, another bank we don't talk as much about, but it, it definitely stood out one you wanted to dig into here, city. Uh, talk a little bit about Citigroup, what stood out for, for their quarter, uh, what's working for them?
2: Well, this quarter, it probably goes without saying that they beat their earnings estimates and revenue <laughs> estimates. <laughs> the The reason that I have never invested in Citigroup is because they have way too much international exposure, in my opinion. They're the most international by far of these five banks. They have more international exposure than Goldman Sachs, which is like an international investment bank. Um, but uh, new CEO Jane Fraser made a big announcement that they are going to exit 13 international markets and these aren't just little when, whenever a bank says they're going to exit some international markets you think some like small countries in, in the other side of the world whatever this is China India Russia Korea big markets um, city they, they said we're going to focus on the US and some areas where there's a lot of concentration of wealth specifically Singapore Hong Kong uh, London so they they don't want to try to build scale in places like China and India, they say that's not a very good use of capital, which I completely agree with. Um, so that, that is, in my opinion, the biggest news to come out of Citigroup. The other thing is they released 3.9 billion in reserves, that was the second, I believe, to uh JPMorgan Chase. Um, their trading revenue was very strong 400 million over estimates, um, investment banking revenue up 46 percent year over year. Handily beat expectations. That's the SPAC boom. If only someone had said on our show a couple weeks ago that investment banking revenue was going to be stronger than expected. I mean, it feels like. I need to rewind the tape and see where I said that, but I I definitely did. I feel like you did too. (laughs) But so, so strong quarter, but I think the exit of those international markets and really the focus on their core, especially bringing more of their attention back to the US, is really the right move
1: yeah yeah that sounds like it makes a lot of sense it, yeah we we'll, we'll we'll have to we'll have to rewind the tape and uh, and go check that out to make sure but i <laughs> I think I think you were on something back I'll, then I'll, Matt. I'll tweet it out later <laughs> well let's jump into uh a- another one I know you're excited to talk about it here for a number of different reasons but really i mean I- I'm gonna go ahead and toot your horn a little bit here for you Matt because as, as listeners know of course at the beginning of 2021 you call that Wells Fargo as your financial stock. Of the year, the one that investors needed to keep an eye on. You felt like good things were were getting ready to happen. It's been a tremendous year for the stock thus far, Matt. Wells Fargo is up forty seven percent as of today versus the market's eleven and a half percent. So this has been a tremendous outperformer. In and, and certainly, we've talked about why it was there was kind of a spring, a coiled spring, uh, ready to set off there. But what what uh, what went on this quarter for Wells Fargo? It feels like this was Maybe the first quarter in a long time where you felt like the optimism was, was really there
2: uh, when it comes to Wells Fargo. And you really set it the optimism. Wells Fargo is actually, most of these bank stocks we've talked about ha- either fell or were kind of flat after earnings because yeah. it was expected that the SPAC boom was going to give them a lot of investment banking revenue. No one thinks that's going to be sustainable, things like that. Wells Fargo posted a great earnings report, and they barely have an investment banking division. <laughs>
1: That's true. So, so
2: that's, that's the true. impressive part. Um, they, their earnings came in you know fifty percent higher than expected, a dollar five a share versus seventy cents on the on the analyst expectations. Um, revenue beat expectations by over half a billion dollars. The the CEO said ch- their, the bank's charge off rate is at a historic low after the pandemic. That's pretty in- impressive. Um, when a year ago, people thought the charge off rates were going to be like financial crisis levels but that never really materialized. Um, The deposit base is up 21%, which at a bank that's focused on savings and loan is really, really crucial. That's Um, huge. Yeah. Uh, Consumer loans down 8%, just like Bank of America mostly due to credit cards, Um, people paying down credit card debt. Um, Not all positive news. The Fed cap is still in place that prevents the bank from growing. Uh, Interest margins were a little weaker than expected um which no one really knew what to make of interest margins cuz tre- yields were just all over the place in the first quarter um and Wells Fargo's efficiency ratio still leaves a little room for desi- to be leaves a little to be desired let's put baby it that steps, way baby steps baby steps um but you know the bank released over a billion dollars in reserves just really strong quarter and it wasn't helped by all this one time investment banking and trading revenue stuff
1: well, hey, listen, man. I mean, I it, 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 we still got a ways to go for for the rest of of twenty twenty one, but I like the direction that this that this story is headed. I, I I mean, I I got it when you tapped this thing at the beginning of the year. I I could see. I could see where you were going with it. I mean, it was a tremendous value value idea there. If they were able to execute, it does look like thus far they are executing and, and hopefully we'll see that play out here for the rest of 2021. Uh, let's wrap it up. you really also wanted to dig into Goldman Sachs. felt like there was some stuff in that earnings report worth highlighting. what stood out to you with Goldman Sachs?
2: I'm t- before too long, we're going to be talking about the big five banks, not the big four. It's going to be <laughs> Goldman Sachs in that number five spot well, if, they, if right. they keep this up. You really saved the best for last year. Um, Goldman Sachs posted its highest quarterly revenue and earnings ever, ever in the bank's you know over a hundred year history. Um, trading revenue went crazy, as we all know. Um, their trading revenue was up forty seven percent year over year. That's the biggest part of Goldman's business. It's not like these other ones where they're a, a traditional bank and then they have an investment banking division. That's what Goldman does. Um, that's the biggest part of their business and it grew 47% year-over-year. Year. Um, investment banking revenue, up 73% year-over-year. Year. That's the, those underwriting fees and stuff like that. Listen to how bad the estimates were for Goldman Sachs. the um, Analysts were expecting $10.22 a share in earnings that would have already been more than double a year ago. Goldman Sachs posted $18.60 a share in earnings. That is 498% growth year over year. Wow. Revenue, Goldman was expected to produce 12.6 billion dollars in revenue for the quarter. That alone would have been great. They beat that by more than 5 billion dollars. Wow. That it's, That's it's huge. pretty crazy how how good they did. Um, consumer banking revenue, the area that they it's a small part of the business but I have high hopes for it. Consumer banking revenue was up 32 percent and unlike all these other banks I'm talking about, they said they had higher credit card balances that were fueling the the growth because their' growth remember they have the Apple card um, that's
1: right They're yeah, using that
2: yeah. to, to really fuel their their growth. People are still buying Apple products in large numbers. <laughs> I've heard <laughs> uh, so uh, they were they released a little bit of reserves but that wasn't the big story with them. Uh 31% ROE return on equity. 31%. 10% is considered good for a bank.
1: Yeah, what was that um, you quoted with JP Morgan, I think, a little bit earlier is twenty-three?
2: Twenty-three, right? which is yeah. unheard of. Man. Twenty-three is like internet bank territory. That's unheard of for like a brick and mortar bank. Goldman did thirty-one percent without releasing reserves. So it's they just had a an absolute like blowout quarter. Again, the stock was only up five percent after earnings because a lot of this is not sustainable revenue growth. But an extra five billion dollars of revenue is nothing to really. I mean, the bank's market cap is like a hundred billion. An extra five billion in revenue, even if it's a temporary pop, is pretty significant.
1: Yeah, I mean, sustainable or not, it matters. It's something worth. Uh, it's 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 something. It's something worth noting. And and I I think yeah, to your point. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of one-off stuff and and we'll have to see how the remainder of the year uh plays out for the banks but it certainly seems like um it it seems like they're in a in a pretty good position here any any one of them i mean you, you it seems like Goldman was the was the report that impressed you the most out of all five is that right
2: yeah i i think and i don't think i'm alone there i think that was just kind of a, an insanely good quarter i mean all five of these banks beat estimates so just to say that a bank beat its earnings expectations for the quarter really doesn't, you know, so did everybody. That's like a participation trophy at this point. But with, We could say they walloped them. Go, yeah, Goldman Sachs takes some the gold medal,
1: <laughs> okay, well, that's all really great stuff, man. I appreciate you taking the time to go through and review all those earnings for us and, and glad we are able to get to them. Um, uh, I think that's gonna do it for us this week, though. I really appreciate you taking the time to dig into all that stuff and uh, and talk to our listeners about what stood out to you,
2: yep, absolutely. It's always fun to go through the the earnings we do I'll see you in three months to do it again,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Nick Ludlam is Senior Vice President at CTIA and leads strategy on behalf of CTIA's members around critical national wireless issues, including the deployment of next-generation 5G networks and wireless spectrum matters. Recently, I had the opportunity to chat with Nick about a report CTIA has published in conjunction with Boston Consulting Group on the impact the 5G rollout will have here in the U.S., the state of the digital economy, and much more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, first question, I guess, really, I have, if you can tell our listeners, our subscribers, tell us about your work with the CTIA. I, I know long ago it it stood for the Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association. That's a mouthful. So now we just refer to it as CTIA. What, what is it that you all do there at CTIA?
0: Sure. So CTIA is the Wireless Industry Trade Association, and uh, our members reflect really the full breadth of the wireless ecosystem from carriers to uh, equipment manufacturers and infrastructure companies and and many, many others. And we represent the industry. We promote the industry. And specific to, I think, this conversation, we are out there talking about educating people about 5G and the impact that 5G is is going to have.
1: Yeah. And obviously, 5G being a very... uh... Big focus for us, not only just at the Motley Fool, but but you know our our investment service in particular, because that really is what the service is focused on: is investing in not only the five G infrastructure, but the digital economy that's that's developing from it. And and that's that's what I thought was so interesting about not only what you're doing with CTIA, but this report that uh, that that was published recently. And so let's talk about that for a few minutes. The CTIA. Uh, with Boston Consulting Group. You recently published a report on the 5G economy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that collaboration and and, and how that
0: all uh, came to fruition. Sure. Well, we, we commissioned this report from Boston Consulting Group. It is it is their report and their analysis. But what we uh, what we were seeking to do uh, is to try to help understand and help others understand the, the type of impact that 5G is going to have over the next 10 years. And and, and really understand what that's going to mean both for communities across the country and but also for individual industries, at least at some level. We're at the very early stage of 5G, so it's still, you know, it's still early, but but based on our experience with 4G in the past 10 years, We think there's, you know, the time is right to to start looking at this type of analysis.
1: Yeah, and this this was a really interesting report from a number of different angles, Uh, and and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, But before we do, I wonder what. Why is the five G economy or this this digital economy that we we refer to? And I think it's important. I, I reiterate this with our our, our our members all the time. I mean, the service is not just focused on the five G and the infrastructure and the tech behind it, but it's really about all of the companies and the markets and industries that are going to be benefiting from this technology. But why? What? 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 what how do we view this digital economy? How important is it? to our overall economy as we
0: think about this post-COVID recovery? Hmm. Well, I think there's a couple of ways that you can, you can look at that. Maybe the place to start is to understand what the wireless ecosystem um, means for our economy today. And uh, and one way to do that is to think about the 4G economy, the, the economy that we're sort of uh, at, the, at the tail end of as we enter the 5G economy. You know, the 4G economy, as I said, you know, we've been living in it for 10 years, uh, 10 years ago when the first 4G networks launched, we had, uh, you know, some inkling of what that might mean, but probably not a full understanding of, of how smartphones would change our lives, how apps and the app economy would change our lives, ride sharing and, and on and on and on. And uh, you know now, as we talk, uh, and, and particularly in the current circumstances, right where we're all remote and and, and our, our lives have been sort of turned upside down, it may be hard to remember and imagine what the pre-4G economy was like. It wasn't that long ago? Um, but but it, it it was very different, and uh, the way we consumed information, the way that we did our work, the way that we interacted with each other, was totally different. Not that long ago. Uh, thanks uh, largely to this, this 4G economy. And and you know for people who are interested, we've done uh, and commissioned economic analysis of what the past 10 years means and, and how many hundreds of millions of dollars the industry as a result of 4G has helped drive into the economy and the millions of jobs that have been created. And so as we look at the 5G economy, we're looking at a similar sort of transformation, but probably one that's even greater when you think about the types of capabilities that 5G has. Um, we were in the early days of, of this, this new economy. Uh, we are uh, in the US, we, we have three nationwide 5G networks, but we know that they're gonna improve and get better and the speeds are gonna keep improving um, such that uh, in, at some point in the next few years, they're gonna be a hundred times faster uh, than, uh, than today's networks that can an- connect a hundred times more devices And really, really importantly, although it's a tough one sometimes to explain, they're going to have five times the responsiveness and really, really reduce the latency, which is where a lot of really interesting applications come in. And so that that holds tremendous potential for pretty much any industry, pretty much anywhere in the country
1: yeah, I mean, it's a really good point there. It does hold a lot of potential for very a number of industries, it's seemingly endless almost. it doesn't It seems like everyone's going to be impacted by this in some way, shape or form. What are some of the industries or markets? Uh, and I know we can't really go into specifics, right? I'm not don't do don't, don't worry about any any companies or anything. But but in regard to industries and market opportunities, what are some uh, that that you're most excited about? Ones that you have your eyes on there at CTIA that you, you think could 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 have a really profound
0: impact? Well, I can I can tell you what the study says. And and I think um, first I should probably top line the study a little bit. Uh, we, it looked at uh, the impacts over the next ten years and found. Um, That 5G would deliver up to about 1.5 trillion in in GDP to the directly to the economy, at about four and a half million jobs. That's you know nationwide over the next ten years. But it also looked at specific industries and it saw uh, you know really tremendous impacts in in places like in industries like construction, manufacturing, and healthcare. Um, Even you know a little bit lower down the list in education uh, and and, uh, sorry agriculture. Um, information services, professional services, I mean, it, 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 there's a real long tail here of, of different industries that are being affected. Um, in, the, in the early days, the days that we're in right now, a lot of those economic impacts come from the buildout itself, which were, you know, a lot of that's already been done, but a lot of it's still going on as we speak. And so a lot of the, the impacts in, say, construction and information services Directly relate to installing 5G equipment and infrastructure, or building out the networks and the, the 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 edge data centers and so on that are going to be part of this network. Um, but as time goes on and as 5G equipped devices become prevalent in all of the industries that I mentioned, the types of impacts get really different. Um, yeah. And looking at things like, you know, how does automated Transportation affects city life, or manufacturing. If we think about sort of automated machinery, or even construction, and think about automated diggers and and loaders, and and so on and so forth, Uh, then you think about AR and VR, which uh, which five G really brings out into the world in 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 a really interesting way. And you think about how that could. Make manufacturing really interesting when you're you know when you're working on some machinery and you're building something out and you've got a, this sort of complete picture of what you're working on around you or or even in healthcare uh, where we've we've already seen examples of people conducting remote surgeries um, yeah. and, and using AR to sort of see inside the patient that they're that they're operating on. So I think your question to me was what maybe what am I most excited about or interested in? Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to say, I think what excites me the most is the potential. There's, yeah. there's just so much um, potential, in all of this, that is that is really, really exciting. And, and you can, when you when you realize the speeds and the latency and the things that, that 5g enables, with a little bit of imagination, you can start to see how that could affect and really transform any industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned you mentioned so many different opportunities there, and that really is in line with a lot of the stuff that we're doing here at the Fool. I mean, another one of the services that I run focuses, focuses specifically on immersive technology, AR and VR, uh, and obviously that that being one of the markets that is is going to be greatly impacted by this. And, and I mean, we're, we're obviously very excited there uh, in regard to that. Um, I, I wonder, you know, when we look back through the the history here of of our our mobile technology, 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. You know, 4G innovation, I I think the way this always seems to work is we talk about all of the merits, the excitement behind it, all of the neat things that are gonna come from it. And it's, it's, it's a bit squishy in the beginning. We can't really fully pinpoint it. And then we know it when we see it, right? In hindsight, it's a little bit more obvious. And I think with 4G, for example, you didn't maybe think about it at the time. I mean, we didn't really think many people would be that willing to watch video on their phone, for example, but now that's commonplace, right? Netflix on your phone, Spotify, music streaming. I mean, there are a lot of things that four g really brought to the table that that we couldn't really pinpoint at the time, but in hindsight, it's like, well, duh. I mean, I, I wonder, is there something in regard to five g where you feel like that same? I know it's a little bit squishy right now, but is there something in in five g where you feel like there's that type of innovation? That is is at the precipice here. Something that could really change the way we do things, even if it's not if it's daily consumer behavior or even maybe daily work behavior. I don't know, but is there something in there that you feel like is becoming a little bit more obvious
0: now as five G starts to roll out? Well, I think uh, the 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 example that gets used a lot is is autonomous transportation, um, and I think that's probably you know partly because you see that today. Um, Maybe in a way that's not reliant on 5G, it feels very tangible and very real. And so I think you could probably easily imagine with 5G and the latency that 5G delivers and, you know, layered on to autonomous transportation, some real opportunities there. Um, so I think, I think that's an obvious case. I think the fact that we're all living in this world that we're living in, and this is maybe a little squishier, but there's probably some really interesting and exciting applications in the telemedicine space in terms of really making that very robust, um, whether it's it's things like patient monitoring and, and being able to really communicate with your doctors and share health information in a much more powerful way. So I, I think that's sort of interesting but, um, but partly because of where we are in the cycle in terms of autonomous transportation, that one stands out to me, ARBR probably as well. I'm glad you said that. And I want, I want, I want to make sure
1: all of our subscribers, our members know that you and I, we, we didn't arrange this beforehand. When you brought up auto, you know, self-driving cars, autonomous uh, transportation and, and telemedicine, those, I, I've, I've recommended companies in those spaces in this service because of my excitement in, in, in those opportunities as well, those industries as well. And and I think that as as a consumer, if you use uh, a telemedicine service just once, then you realize, oh wow, that was pretty easy. That actually worked pretty well. Maybe there is something there. And it reminds me, my father's a physician, he's still practicing. And I remember talking to him about telemedicine several years ago. And, and he, he, as a physician, he had a hard time really actually believing it could take off because regulatory concerns, I mean, patients and doctors need to be physically in the same place together. Uh, it, it just goes to show you how, how quickly things do change. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you, you pinpoint those two opportunities because those, those are two opportunities I'm very excited about as well. Um, what, in regard to this report here, is, is there anything in this report, data points or otherwise, uh, something in the report here that surprised you?
0: Yeah, I think the, you know, we, we commissioned this report uh, with a, you know, with a nationwide scope because in part we wanted to understand what kind of impact 5G would have um, across the country. And and I think what really stood out to me and to us is the degree to which you can look at any state, any community, and begin to see real economic impacts as a result of 5G. It's not just a big city, um, Technology, yeah. uh, it's not just going to have those sort of big city impacts. Now, certainly, you know, population centers drive a certain amount of economic impact just just by virtue of what they are and, and a, a density of industry and so on. But we we were able with Boston Consulting Group to actually model the impacts um, across every you know down to the congressional district level across the country, and you can actually go to our website and drill down at that level and see see those impacts. So there are you know, smaller rural communities uh, where we're, you know, where we're expecting to see impacts, which could be as a result of things like connected agriculture, smart agriculture uh, related applications or telemedicine, as I mentioned earlier. Um, And so there's the, 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 the fact that we can actually start to see 5G having this kind of impact, yes, at a national scale, but also across every type of community in the country is, I think, really exciting. I love that
1: you brought up connected agriculture. That to me, ag tech space uh, for all all of the all of the the hullabaloo on Twitter about fintech, uh, ag tech I think is something that doesn't get nearly as much of a te- attention, but is is something poised to have a very profound impact on on our uh, society in the next in the next several decades. So I'm excited to watch that roll out. Um, if, if folks who read this report, uh, there's a lot of information in there. Uh, is is there a bottom line, big picture takeaway that that you want
0: readers to take away from a report like this? Yeah, well, I think it is that. I, it, you know, the the bottom line is uh, we expect five or Boston Consulting Group, I should say, expects 5G to add about 1.5 trillion to US GDP, create about 4.5 million jobs over the next 10 years. But more importantly, their analysis shows. That that the effects are going to be broad and deep. You know, there's going to be real impacts in communities across the country, in big population centers, in small population centers, and that really should be the takeaway. This is a this is a transformational technology that's really going to affect us all.
1: Well, it should be very exciting, uh, and for folks looking to learn more about five G and the digital economy beyond our service, beyond CTIA. Are there any additional resources that you look
0: to or anything that you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, of course, we do have more information on our website. I would encourage people to check that out, but uh, the, the, the companies that are, that are involved in, in 5G and, and making it a reality, whether it's the carriers or the equipment manufacturers, the chip vendors are all out there um, educating people about 5G, educating markets about 5G, But they're also deeply engaged in their own um, use case development and and demonstrations and and, and innovations around this technology as well. So I think um, any one of of our members who are involved in in, in developing and launching 5G networks have a lot of rich material, which I think could be useful to, to anyone. Well, we'll keep
1: scouring through all of those earnings calls and learning as we go along, but Nick, I know you're busy. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. Nick Ludlum with CTIA. Nick, thanks so much. Thank you. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel and Nick Ludlum, I'm Jason Moser, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.